Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're a couple weeks into a new-ish worship series called The Cries of Our Hearts, and over these several weeks together, we're making our way through kind of the third quarter of Mark's gospel. Um, I noted last week that there's kind of literarily speaking a turn at chapter 8 in Mark's gospel where Jesus has told his friends for the first time that the dual oppositions of the religious establishment and the conquering empire are soon going to become violent toward him, and that anybody who sticks with him from now on might as well pick up their own cross. But before it gets too dangerous, they're going to get plenty more chances to decide if it's really worth it. And tonight's reading from Mark chapter 9 is about one of those chances. The theme for tonight is, Our Hearts Cry Out for Faith. Mark chapter 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were terrified. (laughs) Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Humanity had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first before the Messiah? He said to them, oh, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the son of humanity that he is to go through, remember, many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written about him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And when the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. He answered them, you faithless generation, 
How much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us. Help us. Jesus said to him, If you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, oh, Who is dead? But Jesus, second week in a row, took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? He said to them, oh, this kind can come out only through prayer. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do you know the one about the church being one body with lots of parts? You know, elbows and chins and eyeballs and genitals. Yes, private parts are included in the metaphor. I would not make that up. Okay, maybe I would. But this time, I didn't. Okay, remember how all the body parts are intended to work together, each and all in need of the others, none able to function effectively on its own? We have not read about this together in a long while, the Apostle Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church, but that is where you could find it if you wanted to in chapter 12, a description of how the same religious commitment yields a wide diversity of expression in different people. We are not all meant to be identical, Paul says. Indeed, we function effectively as a community, a body, because we are different, and thus bring different capacities to this body, the church. And we know that much of what makes us different is the context, the family and culture into which we were born, and the incredible variety of experiences we've each had along the way. We do our very best around here to honor the unique identity and perspective and beauty of each human being. Believing that our church is more and more complete as a body with the addition of each new story we learn from each other. But when Paul said that thing about the body having many and various parts, he was not actually thinking about the many experiences that shape us. He was adding something new 
to our understanding of human formation. He said that the spirit of the living Christ inhabits human beings and equips each one individually with gifts that are, on their own, insufficient for human flourishing. But that when conglomerated with the spirit-given gifts of others become powerful contributions to the larger whole. These are not capacities that we can achieve by wanting them badly enough or getting more education or trying real, real hard. They are freely given, as freely as grace is given to all, which is hard for us to grok in the age of U.S. American theocapitalism. You can't take these gifts or buy these gifts or earn these gifts. You can only receive these gifts. And Paul says the gifts are given to each one as if somehow the spirit of the living Christ knows exactly the gift that will suit you and your context and your identity and your experiences the very best. But most of all, most of all, he says, the gifts are given to each because the spirit knows what the community needs. Your gifts are yours, but they are intended for all our sakes, Paul says. Okay, the, let me stop talking about it and just read it. I'm not going to read the metaphorical part about eyes and hands and naughty bits, but the more literal parts about the kinds of gifts that the spirit of the living Christ usually gives. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. Amber and Kate are going to help us throw out some slides so y'all can see that in case you're a visual learner. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit and there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discernment of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same spirit who allots to each one individually just as the spirit chooses. I have not forgotten that our text is Mark 9. Have you? <laughs> so it's quite, a, it's quite a list, right? I mean, gifts of healing and working of miracles, discernment of spirits, tongue speaking, tongue interpreting, a whole catalog of spirit gifts that, to tell you the truth, I've mostly never seen and definitely do not have. They feel kind of spooky, truth be told and definitely not like something that I could get if I just worked harder at it. Now here, here finally is the one single thing that I'm hoping you will see with me from this long epistolary, uh, epistolary expedition, that 
in the middle of that list of remarkable, weird, slightly scary presence that the spirit of the living Christ could definitely give to you if she wanted to is one that seems to be not like the others. To another, Paul says, the gift of faith by the same spirit. Just think about that for a second. Isn't faith like the baseline requirement for anybody who hangs out in places like this? Isn't faith the ticket you have to get punched at the door? Belief in God and some attendant doctrines of the church, it's so basic that we kind of take it for granted, don't we? So much that when our faith suffers a significant hit or endures a long series of small hits that accumulate over time, When we wake up one morning and find that we can't say that we believe any of the stuff we used to think we know for sure, we feel like an imposter in the pew, if we had pews. We feel like we'll be found out as a doubter, an agnostic, even an atheist. And we might imagine that we can't be here in a place like this anymore. Like it's dishonest, especially in a church that does real relationship, no bullshit ever. And we're all around us. People are reading scripture and praying and singing like they do believe it. Like they've got faith. But see, here is faith in a list of gifts that the Spirit chooses for each for the sake of the common good. Faith as one of many gifts in the Spirit's catalog, one that some people get and some people presumably don't. So what are we going to do with that? Okay, Mark chapter 9. Jesus has just told his best friends in the world that he's going to die if he keeps going on this way, and he is going to keep going on this way. And it's going to be violent and painful, and it's going to be dangerous for them too. And they don't quite have it yet, and he knows that. And I'm thinking maybe he needs a little support for what's coming. He is not infected with toxic masculinity. He seeks out friends who will empathize to help him process what this next season is going to bring to his life. At least that's what I like to imagine he was talking about with Elijah and Moses up there on that mountain, about the immense pressure of representing the God of the universe here on earth, about how the big boss in the sky will take every single thing you've got to give to your mission about how exhausting it is to swim constantly against the tide, leading people who don't want to be led, speaking truth to power when the power has the power to, et cetera, et cetera. And after their conversation, he comes down from the mountain to find that, no surprise, the day is never done when you're the Messiah. There's a fight he's got to break up. There's a thrill-seeking crowd clamoring for his attention, and, and there is a distraught parent who is hardly making sense at this point because the suffering of your child is enough to steal your sanity. So Jesus rolls up his sleeves, 
and starts to sort it out. It turns out that the child is in the grips of what we would call a seizure disorder, recognizing it as a symptom of neurological disease or disorder or injury, but which they called possession by a powerful evil spirit, meaning that nothing they knew how to do was going to make it go away. And the desperate father, who has no faith ticket to punch, no credentials of Christian doctrine to his credit, says to Jesus, if you are able, help us out. That if does not go unnoticed by Jesus, who quotes the man back to himself. If, if you are able, is that all you got? Well, anything's possible for the one who believes, he says. And we already know that Jesus' own disciples, the ones who have been all over the countryside curing the sick and casting out demons, have not been able to shake a stick at this one. How much faith is it going to take for this particularly difficult case? The parent does what all parents in this situation do. He tries as hard as he can to give the system what it requires for the sake of his child. If faith is the thing that gets his boy back, all right, he will believe. <laughs> he will believe. He will strain every muscle in his body, including his brain, to muster the trust. He will give Jesus the belief he wants if that's what it requires. Extraordinary faith, extreme belief, coming in three, two, one. Except it doesn't work like that. Even for your little child, even for your heart walking around outside your body, you cannot make yourself believe that Jesus can do anything about that. You cannot force Faith in the God who has let him live this way for so long. Faith is a gift. It comes to you from the Spirit. You can't buy it or earn it or wish it or compel it. All you can do, apparently, is ask for it. Immediately. The father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus will later tell his disciples when they ask why they couldn't do anything to ease that child's distress that, quote, this kind comes out only through prayer. There is no record in this incident of Jesus bowing his head to pray to channel his reign of God power as he sometimes did before healing. But I know that you recognize the prayer on the lips of that daddy. I believe. Help my unbelief. It is the prayer of the one who knows it's beyond their own capacity to believe in God. <laughs> yes, I see, it is entirely ridiculously circular, praying for faith, if you don't quite believe in the one you're praying to <laughs> but there it is and Jesus seems to think in the case of that father and son that it is entirely sufficient 
Here's something I don't think that parent was really thinking about on that day, but that I think is true based on our centuries of reflection on this story and that father's prayer. It turns out that faith and doubt, belief and unbelief, are not actually opposites, but are companions on our journey toward God's heart. Because doubt is, can be a catalyst for the maturing of faith. If I still believed everything I believed when I was five years old, that God is a very big, very old, very white man doing magic in the sky just beyond the cloud cover, well, that would be poor faith indeed. Only by doubting, only by disbelieving, could I move on to the more mature faith of a 15-year-old. If I still believed everything I believed when I was 15 years old, that God is chronically displeased with me and most of humanity, waiting impatiently for us to shape up so he, yep, still he at 15, won't have to torture us eternally, though he's perfectly willing to do it if he has to, well, that would be poor faith indeed. Only by doubting, by disbelieving, could I move on to the more mature faith of a 25-year-old and so on. How many times over a lifetime has my faith been dismantled by doubt? Lots. I honestly don't know any other way that faith can deepen except by paying attention to what's no longer believable, trustworthy, seriously imaginable. And I know this, too, from long experience as someone whose faith kisses doubt square on the mouth every morning of the world. If faith is a gift of the Spirit, one that can be asked for in prayer to a God you mostly don't believe in, then if it is not yours right now, if it is not seriously imaginable that God gets everything God wants, not clear to you that God's love is real and for you and worth it, not credible that Jesus was the embodiment of the logic of God's love, not believable that the spirit of the living Christ inhabits this world and the people of it, then you should definitely be here, right here. In this little crowd of people who keep praying and singing and reading scripture like it's all true. Because somewhere in here is somebody, maybe several somebodies on a good Sunday, who believe it hard, deep in their bones. Somebody in here is somebody with the gift of faith, which is a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Their gift is for all of us, allotted to the individual body part, but for the sake of the whole body. 
I guess I would say that in the story Mark tells about the transfigured Jesus on that mountain and the distraught parent on the ground, that pretty much 100% of the belief that is functioning for the sake of the community, that is the crowd and the disciples and the parent and the child, belongs to Jesus. He's been up on that mountain receiving counsel and comfort from Elijah and Moses, and he is getting himself ready to risk everything on what for now only he can seriously imagine, that rising from the dead thing, that God will triumph over the violence of empire and religious establishment, that God won't let go anything God has made. This is Jesus believing that, trusting that with every step he takes toward Jerusalem. So when he tells that dad, all things can be done for the one who believes, I wonder if he might be talking about his own deepening trust that God gets everything God wants, that the reign of God is operative even here on the ground against a power so strong it would rip a son from his father's heart. How hard do you believe it tonight? Or how hard is it for you to believe it tonight? Whatever your answer, it's so good that you're here. You are right where you're supposed to be. You are very near someone, maybe several someones, who got the gift. Keep the faith, we say to each other. And when you can't, we'll keep it for you so you can pray and ask and wait to receive what you need. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, We'll continually send you thanks. Peace.